Krishna has used this word in contrast to Dhananjaya. Dhananjaya means winner of wealth. It's a name for Arjuna because he went and uh, he collected so much wealth so that his elder brother could perform a great yagya, a great sacrifice. So he got the name Dhananjaya, winner of wealth. So here Krishna is addressing him as winner of wealth and he says, winner of wealth, don't be a kripana, don't be a miser. A miser is a person who leaves this world without giving up their material attachments. This is the real idea of miserly. There's a hint of sarcasm in Krishna's speech here. And he appeals to the uh, wealth of Arjuna's heart. He was uh, good-hearted. And so, to all of us, Krishna's appealing to our good-heartedness and saying, you're good-hearted, don't be a miser. Don't remain attached to things that you can't take with you. Like a miser, in other words, he keeps it to himself and even he's old, won't give anything away. Even you're being notified from day one, you cannot stay. We're hanging on to so many things. So he said, you know better than that. You're a good person. Understand what this is about, this material attachment. Don't be a miser. He says, and this is the other thing here that I mentioned, disciplined intelligence. So the term buddhi yoga is used here. It's used in the next verse as well. Buddhi yukto yahatiha ubhe sukriti duskrite tasmad yoga yudhyasvad yoga karma shukoshalam so in these two verses, we find the term Buddhi Yoga is used. It was also used in the beginning of this whole section where Krishna was advocating yoga. Here, it means something different. There's maybe four places in Bhagavad Gita that this term appears. Later in the tenth chapter. Earlier in this chapter. Two places here. The first time it's used, the last time it's used, it means the same thing. It means bhakti. Bhakti has a cognitive feature to it. Just like we say, when one loves, one knows what to do. And the knowledge of love is so beautiful. Because why? Because it carries with it no extra baggage. We can collect so much knowledge, so much information. But the knowledge of love is like essential knowledge. Why do we collect knowledge and information? Because, well, we want to use it for our happiness, for our prospect. But much of it is a great, actually a great burden, often. And it obscures that which will bring us the kind of essential knowledge that can make us happy. So in love, just like in an ordinary sense, in love, when one's in love, one knows what to do. There's a kind of knowledge in love, and it's very essential. There's nothing extra attached to that, no extra baggage, no burden. So there's a cognitive aspect to bhakti. We call that samvit-shakti. This is what buddhi-yoga means when Krishna speaks of it. Dadami buddhi-yogam tam yenamam upayantite. I give buddhi-yoga to my devotees so they can come to me. It means the cognitive aspect of bhakti I manifest in their heart. This is, and what I'm saying to you is this is not about this thing that between our ears, intelligence, if we could locate it as we do figuratively. It's not about that. The term buddhi yoga at the beginning of this chapter, when Krishna speaks about yoga, is not about material intelligence. Here it is about material intelligence. What is it saying about material intelligence? 
or our intelligence. Intelligence is one of the faculties of our karmic self. We've got a body, we've got a mind, we've got intellect. As I said, the body, okay, it's made of senses, it contacts the world and relays messages to the mind. The mind says, I like this one, I don't like that one. This is good, this is bad, this is happy, this is sad. And a world for us of the mind is defined and we live in it. But there's a subtle kind of voice above that mind that's going, this is good, this is bad, this is good, this is bad, and making these determinations. A subtle voice that says, it may feel good, but it's not good for you. But because the mind is very much wedded to the senses in material life, that voice is often drowned out. And then we do things, or the force of the mind and senses, and then they do get us in trouble, and it confirms. So that voice is there. It exists. So that's a subtle form of power of discrimination, intellect. So in a hierarchy of things, we go from the objects of the senses, things that we taste and feel and forms that we see, to the senses themselves that the body is made up of. We're going up to the mind, which is like the central computer of the thing, to the intelligence, which is like more subtle, and that's the upper rim, so to speak, of the whole plane of material experience. And above that we have consciousness itself, the soul. So this soul, this intelligence, they're close in a sense, but they're categorically different at the same time. Soul, while well, we talked about it in terms of a hierarchy, material hierarchy ends with intelligence. The spiritual strata begins with the soul. To know yourself may involve not thinking more than it does thinking at some point. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be thoughtful people, thinking persons. We should be. But what does it mean to be a thinking person in the true sense of the term? What does it mean to have disciplined intelligence, as mentioned in these two verses? Disciplined intelligence means this, that I'm convinced by my intellect and driven by that to conclude that interacting with the objects of the senses is the source of misery and karmic implication. Therefore, I shall not do that. And in its stead, I'll engage in spiritual practice. It doesn't mean that you have to be uh, an intellectual, well-read, socially informed, broad-minded. This is the real idea of disciplined intelligence and the full exercise of human intellect. The full exercise of human intellect is to fully engage oneself in spiritual practice. This is the most intelligent person. And such intelligent person may not have a PhD, may not be broad-minded, may not be well-read. The degree of our intelligence has nothing to do with our spiritual standing. We might be very well-read, even in all these books, even in these scriptures, and have less spiritual standing than one who is illiterate. We should apply our intelligence in Krishna's service to the extent that we have it. But the amount that we have is not of much 
consequence in terms of our capacity to make spiritual advancement. And that's why examples are given throughout in the literature of persons with no apparent intelligence or who are illiterate and so forth and have made spiritual progress. Those people are people whom we should see as role models because they are Krishna conscious, God conscious. And they're teaching us the truth about intellectual exercise, which is like licking the outside of the bottle of honey without ever tasting it. It's compared to husking the, the empty patty. How do you do that? You know, with rice? Beating an empty patty. You're from Bangala, so you know. Beating the empty patty. You will not get anything from that. This is what the intellectual exercise is about. Even if we use our intellect to study the scriptures, we can deceive ourselves and not make spiritual progress. Only when we exercise our heart, this is bhakti, so if we exercise our senses and our mind and our intellect via the heart, in other words, if we employ these things in the exercise of our heart, then they take a spiritual color, and then they help us. Just like I have to be intelligent, and I have to use logic and reasoning and so forth to write a book like this. What did I say to my friend Jamuna, my god-sister? She wrote me that she was reading my Bhagavad Gita edition, and she was liking it and very much appreciating the realizations, insight, the knowledge therein. She is probably the most famous cook amongst the uh, devotees. She used to cook for Prabhupada, and she made a beautiful cookbook, Art of Indian Vegetarian Cooking. And it was an award-winning cookbook the year it came out. Big, thick book. And it's full of antidotes of her traveling with Prabhupada, our guru, and things that he would say and how he would teach her to cook and what preparations he would like and giving insight into each of the different preparations. It's a very, very nice book. And so she wrote me and thanked me for this book, Bhagavad Gita, and all of the insights. And, and I wrote her back, and I, I did it quite sincerely. I it wasn't being facetious in any way. I said, Jamuna, I would trade in all of my knowledge to be able to cook for Prabhupada. <laughs> Puri Goswami Maharaj once told me that a very learned man, big scholar, came to Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur, the guru of Puri Goswami Maharaj, and our grand guru, and asked Saraswati Thakur that I would like to hear from you the meaning of Srimad Bhagavatam, your explanation. Now, Saraswati Thakur was himself a great scholar. Before he took the diksha from Gorkishore, who was an illiterate, lower-class person, in appearance. This was the guru of Saraswati Thakur. In fact, when Saraswati Thakur came to Gorkishwara's Babaji Maharaj, Babaji Maharaj dismissed him. And everybody at the time was very much eager to have some connection with Saraswati Thakur. In other words, the, the government people have him on our side, in academics or whatever field. He was very desirable, very moral, extremely moral, and very, very bright. He was schooled, educated, very learned. 
He went to Gorkishore, who was an illiterate, apparently lower-class person, and asked to be his disciple. And Babaji Maharaj was not interested in him. And Saraswati Thakur, because he was so smart, he could understand, spiritually smart, he could understand, everybody wants my company, this person doesn't. Hmm? Everybody thinks I have something valuable, I'll be a valuable catch. He doesn't think like that. I want to be his disciple. What is the value of all of my material qualifications and credentials? Nothing. So he was persistent, and Babaji Maharaj accepted him, of course. So he was a very learned person, Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur. And when he started his mission and preached and so forth, he wrote commentaries and books. So this learned scholar came and said, I want to hear the Bhagavatam from you. So Puri Goswami Maharaj said, at that time, I was there, and Saraswati Thakur said to that man, without any trace of cynicism whatsoever in his voice, if you want to understand the meaning of Bhagavatam, you associate with him. He pointed to one of his disciples who was the gardener. He said, he has understood Srimad Bhagavatam. Now that man could not recite one verse from Srimad Bhagavatam. Bhaktisthanda Sarasati Thakur was trying to say to a person who was a scholar and thus took pride in his intellect, that to understand Bhagavatam, you have to understand that this intellect is not the medium, it is not the currency for purchasing real estate in the pages of Srimad Bhagavatam in Krishna Lila. Only by exercise of the heart. Now, yes, exercise your heart should exercise every other aspect of your being. So if you truly exercise your heart, then you fully exercise your senses, in Krishna's service, your mind, your intellect. But it's possible you can exercise your intellect, study all these books, and not exercise your heart. And because intellect is close, in a sense, as we've talked about in the hierarchy, to the soul, it's much more difficult to detect an intellectual sleight of hand than it is that misrepresentation of spirituality that shows up in the form of a physical deviation. If my character is bad, I smoke and drink and take drugs on the side or something like that, then you'd be easy to say, hey, hey, forget that guy. He may say he's spiritual, but he's drinking, smoking, everybody knows he's bogus. Easy to detect. But the intellectual sleight of hand is so difficult to detect that it's easy to fool yourself. Easy to fool yourself and think you've gone somewhere. So we should be very careful about this. That's why those persons cited in the literature who are illiterate but become Krishna conscious, like the Brahmin in South India, Shirangam that Mahaprabhu embraced and said, you understand the meaning of Bhagavad Gita. He was illiterate. He couldn't understand the meaning, but his guru told him to read 18 chapters every day. So he was doing it. And Mahaprabhu looked at him and saw ecstatic symptoms of ecstasy. Other people were mocking him because he couldn't recite properly and so forth. Mahaprabhu said, you're the true knower of Bhagavad Gita. Why are you crying? He said, every time I pick up the book, I think of Krishna talking to Arjuna. And Krishna's God, but he became the chariot driver of Arjuna, like a taxi driver for his devotee. 
take me here, take me there. And I think, what is the compassion, mercy of Krishna that he becomes conquered by love? Although he's the Supreme God, he becomes conquered by his own devotee's love, subordinates himself. To, and I just bring tears to my eyes. Mahaprabhu said, you have understood Bhagavad Gita. And he pulled him aside and told him many secrets about spiritual life. He told him, don't tell this to anybody. <laughs> it means those secrets, those are for people who understood the message of Bhagavad Gita, who can really understand the message. Oh, then there's some other things that we can elaborate upon. Don't be so concerned about those things now. These examples are there. These are role models for us. We may say, well, we should not make the unintelligent, illiterate people who get bhakti our role models. We should make uh, the Goswamis our role models. They were intellectuals and they had logic and they were disciplined in these things. They wrote the books and so forth. That's not all the Goswamis did. <laughs> they didn't only do that. They did it in a certain way. What does Sutta Goswami say? When Sutta Goswami begins his explanation of Bhagavat, Srimad Bhagavatam, that he heard from Sukadev, Sri Sukha, he says, Kurunayaha, Puranaguyam. He offers his pranam to Sukadev, my guru, my shiksha guru, who I heard give Bhagavatam to Parikshit. It wasn't spoken into my right ear, but I was there. That technicality aside, I got what he was offering. And now I'm asked to speak on that. First, I offer my pranam, my respect to Sukadev, who, Karunayaha, Purana Guhyam, the secret Guhyam of this Purana, Srimad Bhagavatam, that he's the possessor of, that treasure. He has that. He has revealed that, spoken that, karunayaha, out of compassion. What does it mean? Lokanam hita karano tribhuvane manyo sharanyakaro nana shastra vicharanikvanaosadharmasamstapako These Goswamis, they took all this scripture. They may be role models. No one can match what they did. The Goswamis. It is not something to imitate what they did. Their standard of renunciation, their standard of bhajan, their standard of knowledge and learning. We do deify that. We are in awe of that. And we may come to such a high ideal that they embody principally by their kurunayaha, compassion, mercy. This mercy is a tangible reality. It's a tangible reality. In other words, Sutta Goswami says, my guru, Sukadev, he spoke the Bhagavatam out of compassion. It means he had no ambition. He had nothing to gain. One who has no ambition, no material ambition. If we see that, we see a lakshan, a symptom, a characteristic of what we call mercy, compassion. It's not just a word, or it's not just, oh, you're talking magic now, compassion, mercy, let's be practical. No, it's, it's a tangible reality. Who speaks Bhagavatam 
with that motivation, that recitation, that will be powerful. That will have the power to change us. So if we want to be like Goswamis, it's not just they were logical, reasonable, thoughtful people, thinking men, they were spiritual men. And therefore they used all their thinking to explain this point. And it was powerful and effective. Gorkeshwar Das Babaji Maharaj, as I mentioned, was illiterate. One professional reciter of the Bhagavatam, there are people like this. They're very intelligent. They know Bhagavatam by heart. And they recite it. Many people come and listen. And they make a living like this. This fellow wanted to recite Bhagavatam near Gorkishwar Das Babaji because Gorkishwar Das Babaji was known as a Mukta Purusha, a great liberated soul. So he thought, if I set up my camp to speak Bhagavatam, so many people will come. It's right next to where Gorkishwar Das Babaji is doing his bhajan, his spiritual practice. So naturally he'll come out because he likes the Bhagavatam and he'll listen. And then I'll be able to say, even Gorkishore comes to my Bhagwat recitation. You'll see what is my position. So, for three days he recited Bhagavatam there, three or seven days, maybe seven days. And Babaji Maharaj never came out. After it was over, he came out and told his assistant, can you clean that area over there? He said, Babaji Maharaj, how I can clean the area? Bhagwat has been spoken there. He said, you heard Bhagwat. I only heard rupee, rupee, rupee. <laughs> dollars, 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 that's all. He heard the motive. He heard the heart. So the language of bhakti is language of love, not language of intellect. We may couch the language of love, the feeling of love, in logical arrangement to speak to people who require such, who demand such, who are so oppressed by their intellect that their intellect demands gratification, demands that it makes sense. It demands that love makes sense. Love doesn't make sense in one sense. <laughs> love is beyond sense. Love knows no reason, it said. So we should understand this point, what it means to use our intelligence in Krishna service and be careful that we don't become a victim of an intellectual sleight of hand and think that we've gone somewhere spiritually merely by intellectual exercise. There is a healthy bashing of the intellect throughout the scripture and particularly, actually, in the mission of Bhakti Sarasati Thakur and his successors. Now, we should be also careful that that's not abused and distorted and on the basis of hearing the limits of intellect and so forth. We become non-thinking people and artificially humble and psychologically uh, dysfunctional. Uh, no. <laughs> that extreme also happens. And that maybe required some discussion, some preaching to correct that kind of thing. But we should be careful that in doing so, we don't go to the other extreme. So here, is recommended, yes, you should use your intelligence. It should be disciplined. The real discipline of the intelligence is, and this is what we mean by nishta, this stage of bhakti. Nishta means fixed in spiritual practice. Use our intelligence 
to keep us fixed in spiritual practice regardless of what the mind and senses may say, where they may want to take us today, at this moment, at that moment. When you use your intelligence like that, this is the real spiritual use of intelligence, and the result of that will be, over time, you'll get ruchi, you'll get a taste. And then you have super reasoning, reasoning to support that taste, taste for spiritual life. At that point, intelligence recedes to some point. So intelligence can guide us, if it's trained to guide us properly from scripture and hearing from sadhus, it can guide us to practice, to stay fixed in practice. And as the practice develops and the taste for Krishna comes out, then the taste will guide us, the feeling will guide us. And then our need for logic and reasoning and explanation and so forth, oh, that will be diminished considerably. Bhakti is kind enough that she takes the time and has the patience to address our intellect. She takes a form in which she appears to make sense, something like that. So, in the spiritual sense, Krishna is talking about here using intellect. And then he says, those established in yogic wisdom, the wise, who have renounced the fruits of action, are thus released from the bondage of rebirth and attain that abode that is without anxiety. So here in this verse, Krishna speaks about the result of applying one's intellect in this way, in this kind of yoga. So he says, those who are established in such yogic wisdom and thus have renounced the fruits of action, they're released from samsara, the cycle of birth and death, and release is a negative thing, and released from something that's problematic, and they attain that abode that is without anxiety. What is its name? Vaikuntha. <laughs> Vaikuntha. That plane without any anxiety. So, as I've mentioned throughout, even where Krishna is discussing other disciplines, while he's indirectly shedding light on the glory of bhakti, he's often also covertly advocating and explaining bhakti. This chapter is a summary of what, in a sutra-type form, like in codes, of the rest of the book. So that twofold aspect of the mukti, the liberation of bhakti, is brought out here. Release from the negative and to become situated in positive standing in one's real ego, real identity, to have lila seva, bhava seva. And then the two final verses of this section, Krishna says, when your intellect emerges from the thicket of delusion, you shall become disgusted with all that has been heard <laughs> and all that is to be heard. Thereafter, when your intellect is fixed and not perplexed by scriptural injunctions, you shall attain yoga samadhi. What he means here by scriptural injunctions is those that advocate fruitive activity. You should not be perplexed by those by thinking that those are the conclusive statements of the scripture. They have their place for people who can't give up chasing fruits 
they say, do it in this way, chase them in this way. And, and so there's some sacrifice made, some restriction, some harnessing of the unbridled tendency and urge to be a fruit eater, <laughs> fruit catcher, result-oriented for one's own selfish purposes type of a entity. Curb that somehow or other. Even those statements in the scripture that teach us how to acquire fruits are really teaching us to restrict the fruit-gathering mentality. And that's the larger portion of the scripture because that's what most people are interested in. They're not interested in yoga. So he says, when you see the way through the the thicket of all these verses about that, what it's really about, then you shall obtain yoga samadhi. So, that's the end of this section. Are there any questions tonight? Yes, Brahmadas. Did Mahaprabhu wear uh, orange? Saffron? Yes. And how is it that it went from Mahaprabhu who wore saffron to Sanatana Goswami who wore white and the tradition went on Well, because at the time that Mahaprabhu took sannyas, the Gaudiya Sampradaya had not been established with all of its regulations and guidelines and so forth. He was the ecstasy that the Sampradaya or the lineage was about, but he left it to Sanatana Goswami, Rupa Goswami, and others to articulate that ecstasy with scriptural backing, and then to develop a whole language for expressing it on so many levels. So you have your mode of dress and this and that and so on, so rituals and rites and so on. So that was their task. They institutionalized the ecstasy of Mahaprabhu. It was like a great waterfall that you could stand back and just be in awe of. But they took the waterfall of Mahaprabhu's ecstasy and made a lake out of it by institutionalizing it primarily through literature, which is kind of a looser form of, of institutionalizing. But by institutionalizing, it made it accessible so you can drink from the lake and you can bathe in it and so forth and so on. And then further, of course, in some of the literatures, as they say, they give them modes of conduct and dress and, and so on. So, previous to that, the uh, sannyas, which Mahaprabhu had adopted, the renounced order of life mandated the saffron dress, or red cloth, as sometimes it's called. That was the standard. So, because they were forming a whole new sampradaya, and it was also in opposition to the monistic idea of Advaita Vedanta, in the Advaitans and the Smartas, through the Smartas, they had a real grip on the people, religious people of the time, and and largely they were identified with the whole sannyasa order. So, in a way of distancing themselves from that identification and distinguishing themselves, then other, the white cloth was accepted by Sanatan, and the formalities of sannyas and other aspects of Varnashram, which sannyas is part of, were minimized to a large extent. 
So Sanatana Goswami, Rupa Goswami, they all wore white cloth. Now, Bhaktisiddhan Sarasati Thakur, in more recent times, around 1920, he instituted the sannyas in Gaudiya Vaishnavism with this saffron dress. So we see him doing something that's the antithesis of what Sanatana Prabhu did. But if we understand the relativity, in a sense, of what Sanatana Goswami did, it was utilitarian. It had a purpose that it sought to fulfill. So if one really understands that purpose and sees at another time, generations and centuries later, that purpose will be better served by altering that or, or doing what appears to be the opposite, donning this dress and introducing the sannyas, then that has value, that has spiritual currency. So that's what Bhakti Saraswati Thakur did. And those persons who lay greater stress on the formalities, then they may not appreciate the innovative insights of Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur. Actually, it's interesting to note that Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur was disturbed that the Gaudiya Vaishnava movement of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu had fallen into a state in which it was more identified with Vaidhi Bhakti than Raghunuga Bhakti. It's really incredible to understand that that was his concern. In other words, preoccupation, as he saw it, with formalities, the pancharatrik diksha, and all such things. He felt that the real rag, spontaneous love of Mahaprabhu's teaching, had been distorted and diluted by the influence of Vaidhi Bhakti. He considered the pancharatrik vidi initiations coming from the Vaidhi Bhakti side and Harinam from the Bhagwat side, Rag side. It's true, it's accurate. And you see, in these Ragmarg movements of Gaudiya Vaishnavism that were opposed to his innovations, what is the main objection? There's some discrepancy in the Pancharatrik Vidhi, Diksha. This is the main objection. He's objecting to the whole thing. He's saying the preoccupation with this has resulted in diluting the Ragmarg and giving emphasis to Vaidhi and formalities and so forth that the Rag is actually free from. So he emphasized Nam, Harinam. Minimized the importance of this uh, Siddha Pranali and all of these things and the dress and whatnot. And th- these are all the points where objectionists to his innovations are focused. They're really focused on details, not on substance. And how could they not? When, when the substance of the person, spiritual substance of the person, is undeniable. Krishna Shakti Bine Nahe Taru Pravartanam. Mahaprabhu tried to minimize his position in front of Balabacharya <laughs> by glorifying all of his devotees. When Balaba had some disagreement with them, Mahaprabhu was saying, If you want to know me, you should know me through these people. Because of Haridas, I was able to do this. Because of Rupa Sanatana, because of Ramanand Roy, I could understand the Ragmarg and this, glorifying all of them. But at that time, anyway, Balaba said to him, Krishna Shakti Vine Nahi Tar Pravartana. Krishna Shakti Vine Nahi Tar Pravartana. He said, Look, the thing is this you have Krishna Shakti and Vine Nahi. Without that, you cannot effectively spread 
Krishna Sankirtana. You've done that. I know you have Krishna Shakti. What Bhakti Sarasvati Thakur has done, Bhakti Vedanta Swami Prabhupada has done, this requires Krishna Shakti. And through that Krishna Shakti, they've awakened Shraddha in so many people, and that some of those people have become so deceived that they question the spirituality, few of them, that Bhakti Sarasvati Thakur, because of certain such details, when the very Shraddha which is Adhikar, eligibility for bhakti, has been awakened in their heart through his shakti. What is that shakti? Shuddha shatva visheshatma prema suryamshu samya bhak. Shuddha shatva visheshatma. This vishesh combination, mixing of ladini shakti, samvit shakti, the cognitive and ecstatic constituents of the srup shakti, when this manifests in the heart, that means Krishna is embracing that jiva. Kintu praboriya priyavatasya sakshadhoritvena samastha shastra yuktastatabhavyata eva sadvi sakshadhoritvena Guru means sakshadhoritvena He is of the same quality as Hari. What is the quality of Hari? Of God, nirgun, this quality. He is above the gunas, sattva-gun, raja-gun, tamagun, the influence of material nature. He is of this quality, sakshadhari-tvena, samastha-shastra. All shastra says this. And he is of the quality of hari. Hari means who takes away. So guru has that power to take away our misconception, to take away our ignorance. For that purpose, he should be learned in shastra. Because shraddha means shraddha in shastra-praman. He awakens Shraddha faith in revelation, that knowing is possible through means of revelation, comprehensive knowing, not otherwise. And the greatest body of revelation, that is Shastra, and its agent, its active expression, Gurudev. Because he knows Shastra, and he's awakened faith in the Praman, the evidence of Shastra. By citing that, he removes the doubts and the ignorance of his disciples. He takes away, like Hari. He is of that quality. Sakshadharitvena. Samastha Shastra. All Shastra says this. And all sadhus accept that, therefore. But Vishnu Chakvati Thakur says, what then? Kintu. However, Kintu Prabhorya Priyavatasya. He's speaking of a progression. The beginning we will see, Guru is God coming to me. Like God, ambassador of God. Oh, that's all I should give all regard here. If we do that, give all regard there. Now, God is uh, Samasti Guru, Mahaprabhu is Samasti Guru. So, his representatives, Vyasti Guru, locally representing that. Now, God has many concerns. When he expresses concern for you, Eru Pramandikon Bhagavan Jeev Guru Krishna Prashade Bhai Bhakti Latovij. That means Krishna has a, is thinking of you. What does it mean? Guru comes. He's thinking about so many things. Also thinking about you in a general way. But specifically, well, you are worthy of attention. You have some interest in me. And understanding that it is only me. Then he comes. That is Guru. 
Sakshadhari Tvena Samastha Shastra So we pay attention there. We have all attention there. All of our attention. Then what? Some progression will come. Therefore, Vishwanath Chakrabhita says King too. However, he is directly Hari, the quality of Hari. King too. Prabhupada Priyayavatasya. Prabhupada, when he first said to his students in New York that, so tomorrow there will be initiation. Those who would like to be initiated, please come tomorrow. They had been hearing from him. So some of them said, what's that mean? <laughs> he was being generous. What are the implications of that? And Prabhupada said, it means that we will accept the Guru as good as God. And he got up and walked out. And so did some people. <laughs> but some stayed around. They took the initiation and treated him like God is coming here. Not that he is God, but God through him is coming. So I should pay attention here. Sakshadhari. And if we do that, we pay close attention. Then in time, there's a progression. This is the progression. What will we see? Kintu. However, Vishwana qualifies his statement. Kintu prabhorya priyavatasya. That guru is dear to Krishna. He's dear to Krishna. Now, this sounds contradictory. He's Krishna. He's God. And he's dear to God. What could be more than being God? Prabhupada said, you should treat the Guru, accept the Guru as good as God. And you say, oh my God. <laughs> what could be more than that? I'm saying there's a progression. What can be more than that? Devotee of God is more than that. Who is real devotee of God? has the power to conquer God. That is Krishna. Try to understand. There is no separation between Krishna and Krishna's devotees. The heart of the devotee, that is Krishna. That is the Swarup Shakti of Krishna. Krishna is like sugar, sweet. But to taste himself, then he manifests his Shakti as Radha. That Ladini Shakti is in Krishna. He's the source of all Shakti. To taste that, he manifests as Radha. And that Shakti of it is Radha. When that manifests in your heart, Krishna is embracing you. You are a real devotee. And you have the power then to conquer him. Like Radha has conquered Krishna. That is more than Krishna. Who is the guru of Krishna? Ami Purnatattva. Purna Brahma. But uh, this, uh, he says, Radhikar Prem Unmad. The Prem of Radha is making me mad. The love of Radha is making, I'm, I'm the Purna Tattva, the, I'm Purna Brahma, the source of all Brahman, the full Brahman. I'm it. <laughs> That's my position, he says. But she's driving me mad <laughs> and making me dance. She is my Guru. So this is progression. First we see the Guru as good as God. And then we will see, oh, he's a devotee of God. Real devotee of God. So, real devotee means who has been embraced by Krishna in this way. So he is Priya. 
he is dear to Krishna. We may say in a general sense, the preacher who preaches Bhagavad Gita, he is dear to Krishna. Krishna said it. Who preaches Bhagavad Gita to the devotees is dear to me. No one will be more dear to me in this world. This is not the only world. There's another world. And who has seva there, that is more dear to Krishna. In fact, if you really preach properly the message of Bhagavad Gita, this should be the result, that you become dear to Krishna. And what is the symptom of becoming dear to Krishna? That you get lila seva, bhava seva. Therefore, Krishna shakti vinenahi tar pravartana. Who can preach has Krishna shakti, is dear to Krishna. It means... His uh, mental constructs have melted. The mind becomes melted. And a particular taste is developing that takes over the mental quantum. It acts like the mind, but it is not the mind acting. It assumes the devotee's mind, this bhava. And in a particular way, that devotee, in a particular taste, develops a relationship with Krishna. And so, when we advance... We will see Guru is not only Krishna, but he's dear to Krishna and he's representing a particular aspect of the Surup Shakti of Krishna. That is being shown to me. That face, then I will cultivate that, enter his group, or whatever he shows me, whatever is shown to me, that I will cultivate. So, who has power to preach? As Krishna Shakti. This is the idea of Guru. Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasri Thakur is a real Guru in Gaudiya Sampradaya. Real Ragmarg Guru. We should be concerned with these points more than the color of the dress. Srimad Bhagavad Gita ki jai. Sri Guru Vaishnav Guru Parampara ki jai. Sri Bhakti Vedanta Sami Prabhupada ki jai. Bhakti Rakak Siddhadeva Goswami Maharaj ki jai. Sri Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasri Thakur Prabhupada ki jai. Sri Bhakti Vinod Puribar ki jai. Gaur Bhakta Binda ki jai. O Premanandi. Haribo. Haribo.